This is The Guardian. Hi there. This might not be what you're expecting. This is a bonus episode of a new podcast from The Guardian called Weekend. It's being released every Saturday. It will be on this feed for the next couple of weeks, so if you like it, make sure to subscribe. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. And before we jump in, just a heads up that there is a bit of bad language in this podcast, so you might not want to have young kids listening. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, we have award-winning columnist Marina Hyde on another turbulent week for Boris Johnson. Edward Helmore explores the astonishing rise of the controversial podcast star, Joe Rogan. The Guardian's deputy music editor, Laura Snapes, chats to singer George Ezra on fame, friendship and coping with OCD. And finally, writer Alex Mashakis asks, are you a jerk at work? First up, Guardian columnist Marina Hyde reflects on a week that saw Prime Minister Boris Johnson explain to the Commons why he's under police investigation for multiple breaches of his own COVID laws and peddling a paedophile-based conspiracy theory against the leader of the opposition in the process. This piece is read by Jan Ravens. If you ever wondered what Jim Jones's corpse would have looked like if it had spent three weeks getting bleached and bloated by a Guyana river, it floated up to the House of Commons dispatch box on Monday at 3.30pm. Let's begin with some real talk. The Prime Minister is under police investigation for multiple breaches of his own Covid laws. At least four gatherings or parties in which Boris Johnson was directly involved are being probed by the Met, including one in his private flat. In total, police are investigating 12 potentially law-breaking Downing Street parties, which took place after the British people had been ordered, by him, to live under the most draconian restrictions imposed in peacetime. The global Britain that Johnson promised saw him Monday bin off a call to the Russian president, who was apparently on the brink of an invasion, so that he could explain that he needs to wait for police officers to decide if he went to an illicit party in his own home. The Conservative MPs, somehow able to make their peace with all this, increasingly resemble cult members accepting the latest transparent lies and failures of a cult leader. Suitcases full of Kool-Aid seem to have been wheeled into Boris Johnson's meeting with Tory MPs on Monday night. Two weeks ago, Birmingham Northfield MP Gary Sambrook was widely reported to be one of the leading lights of a plot to remove Johnson. On Monday night, he issued a dispatch from the compound in which he declared the PM to be the Boris Johnson we love and who has delivered. Sorry, Gary, but wake up. This ends with a bungling SWAT team going through the window and discovering the whole place is wired. 
As for what Johnson said to his followers on Monday night, he is reported to have compared himself to Othello, who he seems to think was always seeing the best in people. Righto. So to confirm, the country isn't just being run by a guy who can't even understand the plot of Othello, but by a guy who can't even understand the plot of Othello and is writing a book about Shakespeare. It's called Not Giving a Fuck, Gary. Look it up. That said, good to see the PM getting his excuses in early for shopping Desdemona to the cops for her ABBA party. And yet, for someone who normally puts the eye into iambic pentameter, Johnson will still only speak in the first-person plural when it comes to taking responsibility for what his investigator Sue Gray found to be failures of leadership. What a tell. As he preferred it on Monday in his statement to the Commons, we must look ourselves in the mirror and we must learn. Who's we? Face it, Gary, he's the least convincing man in the mirror since Michael Jackson. In fact, speaking of pedos, the Prime Minister chose to use one as a fig leaf. Such a Churchill move. When the hour for leadership came, Johnson opted to knowingly advance a grotesque and indefensible conspiracist lie that Keir Starmer failed to prosecute Jimmy Savile when he was head of the Crown Prosecution Service. All Conservatives who regard themselves as decent need to ask if it's really that much of a leap from this sort of thing to some of the other paedophile-based conspiracies that are increasingly part of the dangerous undertow of global populist policies. If they're not up to it, it will continue. On past form, the Met will spend months not getting to the bottom of things. Should any fines be issued, I'm sure Johnson will get some Tory donor to set up a blind trust to pay for his. He should start running a cash phone line during PMQs, like a proper televangelist. At least those who remember what the past two years were actually like, i.e. everyone, can be glad that Gray's update acknowledged something crucial. Yes, she stated, working at Downing Street during the pandemic was challenging. Those challenges, however, also applied to key and frontline workers across the country who were working under equally, if not more, demanding conditions, often at a risk to their own health. The hardship under which citizens across the country worked, lived and sadly even died while observing the government's regulations and guidance rigorously are known only too well. This is a vital counter to the frankly eye-popping number of anonymous, exceptionalist briefings from Downing Street employees, which talk about the saviour complex some staff apparently felt. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, no one has ended up being more elitist than the guys who swept to power promising to smash elites, but who turned out to regard themselves as miles above rules that were followed even in extremists by silly little people like the actual head of state. It wasn't always this way. By chance, one of my children last week visited Bletchley Park, which, as you know, was the centre of the Allied code-breaking operation during the Second World War, without which the war might not have been won, and where heroic efforts are judged to have shortened it by between two and four years. At Bletchley, he tells me, they only started serving beer at the end of a shift in 1944, 
To put that into perspective, by that stage there was a fourth rotor on the Enigma machine, meaning the possible combinations had leapt to truly head-frying levels. And the staff had been working round the clock at the facility for five years of global war under the constant threat of bombing. Flash forward to 2020. When they were getting pissed at 6pm in the garden in May, the desk johnnies of Downing Street had been stewarding a peacetime lockdown for two effing months. I mean, if you can't do that without intravenous Prosecco, then buck up, run along and work in interiors PR. This is the same self-awareness to self-regard ratio as people who list their occupation as film producer. As things stand, insufficient numbers of Conservative MPs are prepared to wake up and smell the cordite. But all the Tories defending Johnson and skirting over these insults to ordinary people shouldn't feel alone in the world. They have as their spiritual cousins all those craven Republicans who now refuse to condemn Donald Trump despite the fact they know he is a liar and a crook, know that he only cares about himself and thinks that rules are for little people, and know that he regards even them with a mixture of amusement and contempt. Backing Johnson in the face of all this is really not much different from scuttling down to Mar-a-Lago to pay obeisance and hoping you get smiled at. Come on, what's the worst that can happen? The fantastic, as always, Marina Hyde. Read by Jan Ravens. Spotify has recently found itself in the headlines after some high-profile artists withdrew their music, citing COVID misinformation on Joe Rogan's podcast. It's Spotify's most popular show, and they've decided to stick with him. Journalist Ed Helmore charts the rise of the highly controversial host. Read by Neat Mohan. Dangerous, scary or gross stunts. Now... He's one of the most powerful figures in American media, though often little acknowledged or actively shunned by the country's coastal elites. He is sometimes left-leaning, but says he detests identity politics and political correctness. He appears committed to some forms of social justice, but is amenable to conservatives. The Joe Rogan Experience podcast, the vehicle for his enormous wealth and power, intersperses comedy, politics, criticisms of the media, interviews and discourses on topics ranging from cage fighting to psychedelics and quantum mechanics. Last week, Rogan, a martial arts enthusiast and one-time Bernie Sanders endorser, collided with the rock veteran Neil Young. The 76-year-old Canadian singer objected to the music streaming giant Spotify, giving a platform to Rogan, 54, who has been accused of promoting falsehoods about COVID vaccines. Earlier this month, Rogan invited Dr. Robert Malone, credited with a role in developing mRNA vaccine technology, on the show. Malone, who has been banned from Twitter for spreading COVID misinformation, claimed mandates of an experimental vaccine are explicitly illegal and said the US government was out of control. Both men were criticised for promoting several baseless conspiracy theories, including the false claim that hospitals are financially incentivized to falsely diagnose deaths as having been caused by COVID-19, and Malone's assertion that world leaders had hypnotized the public into supporting vaccines. The appearance prompted calls for the White House health advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, to debate Malone on the show, 
and proved to be the trigger for Young to issue his Him or Me ultimatum to Spotify. Earlier this month, 270 scientists and medical professionals signed a letter urging Spotify to take action against Rogan, accusing him of spreading falsehoods on the podcast. Rogan has said he used ivermectin, an anti-parasite drug that has no proven benefit against COVID-19 against the illness. He says he is not anti-vaccine, though he has questioned the need to give it to young, healthy people. I'm not an anti-vax person, Rogan said last year. I believe they're safe and encourage many people to take them. The Joe Rogan Experience, which can run for up to three hours, is the number one podcast on Spotify. After Young issued an ultimatum, Spotify chose to go with Rogan, who received $100 million for distribution rights from the Swedish company in 2020. For Spotify, it was an obvious choice. Streaming is highly competitive, with low margins. Apple, Google and Amazon are competing for market share. In its latest filing, Spotify reported 172 million paying subscribers, up from 144 million when it signed Rogan. When it comes to plotting a lucrative future in modern media, Young, a cultural legend, was simply not competitive. Britain's Prince Harry and his wife Meghan expressed their concern to Spotify, with which they have a podcast deal on Sunday. But the fight with Young, joined by Joni Mitchell, was not the only major headline Rogan created this week. He also interviewed the right-wing Canadian academic Jordan Peterson, triggering a deluge of coverage over comments about race and the climate crisis. Not that Rogan cared, nor would it bend the arc of his astonishing rise. Rogan got his start as a magician on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. He moved to Massachusetts, where he competed in Taekwondo, he switched to comedy and was nicknamed Little Ball of Anger. He went for the soft flesh, skewering the fable of Noah's Ark. Noah was 600 years old and a drunk, he would tell audiences. Back on the West Coast, he was cast in the 90s sitcom News Radio, playing a conspiracy-prone dude named Joe. In 1997, he started working for Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC, as a commentator. He moved to reality TV, then in its infancy, as a host of Fear Factor, inviting contestants to engage in tests involving worms, flies and snakes. After 9-11, as commentators worried that culture had changed forever, the NFL invited U2 to play the Super Bowl halftime show. The names of those who died in the attacks scrolled behind the band. But in a memorable act of counter-programming, Rogan presented Fear Factor, Playboy Playmates edition, replete with a countdown clock to the second half. Rogan prized away 11 million viewers. Since then, he has only increased in popularity and accrued cultural power, caring little for taste or perceived notions and winning a legion of fans attuned to new media platforms and dismissive of old elites. The social media stars know how to tell a story. It's all about presentation, whereas journalists employ some of the most boring writing ever. It's all formula, noted the cultural critic Bob Lefsetz last week. Young people don't even bother to read the paper, and they never will. They're going to be reached another way. Rogan's wealth has grown. He's moved from California to a $14 million mansion outside Austin, Texas, destination of choice for tech entrepreneurs. Nor is he alone. A flip side to Rogan, though closer than either might think, is Charlemagne the God, aka Leonard Larry McKelvey, a hip-hop star and morning radio host. Democratic politicians flock to Charlemagne, frequently getting burned in the process. 
He recently asked Vice President Kamala Harris who was really running the country. Both Rogan and Charlemagne are just doing their jobs, says media professor Robert Thompson at Syracuse University. The job description is practically to say the kinds of things that will almost, but not quite, get you fired. Eventually, you cross the line because the line is not very well defined. Neil Young, Thompson says, could find that he needs to be careful what he wishes for. However noble Young's intentions are, Rogan is contained by a subscription wall. Spotify has distribution rights, but Rogan owns his show. Fire him and he could potentially have even greater distribution than he's got now. In 2019, a year before Rogan signed to Spotify, his podcast was downloaded about 190 million times in a month. Elon Musk came on. The pair smoked a joint. The far-right conspiracist Alex Jones came on in 2020. Daniel Ek, chief executive and co-founder of Spotify, defended Rogan to the FT. We want creators to create. It's what they do best. We're not looking to play a role in what they should say. In recent months, Rogan has invited anti-vax guests, including the far-right Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers, who described the deworming medication ivermectin as a viable COVID treatment. There are still some limits, even for Rogan. On Wednesday, Spotify slightly changed its tune, mindful that it may bear some responsibility for COVID-19 misinformation. We want all the world's music and audio content to be available to Spotify users, it said. With that comes great responsibility in balancing both safety for listeners and freedom for creators. We have detailed content policies in place and we've removed over 20,000 podcast episodes related to COVID since the start of the pandemic. But does Rogan share such beliefs? Thompson acknowledges that many believe stars like Rogan or Fox News' Tucker Carlson are performing an act, successfully gaining money and influence. They're staying in character. Other people are supporting and believing them. So I guess in the end, whether it's an act or not, is something we will never know. And therefore, doesn't really matter. That was Joe Rogan, Rise of a Highly Controversial Cultural Power by Ed Helmore. Read by Neat Mohan. Next, his upbeat songs have won him legions of fans, but beneath his sunny lyrics, George Ezra has a nihilistic streak that nearly ended his career. He talks to The Guardian's deputy music editor, Laura Snapes, about rediscovering the pleasure in music. Read by Esme Patyford. George Ezra walks into the old barge, the Hartford pub that's been his lifelong local. And within three minutes, his song, Budapest, is on the stereo. They're so supportive here, he says with shy gratitude, as he stoops under a curtain into a back room. Ezra first came here after school, searching for a loo. At 16, he started working behind the bar. When friends come home for Christmas, this is where they meet. And where we would have always met. It still smells the same currently of yesterday's log fire, a comforting contrast to the January damp. Over the next few hours, locals stick their heads in to wave hello to their friendly neighbourhood pop star, drinking lime cordial and soda in crisp double denim, and he greets them all by name. This is the approachable figure Ezra, who is 28, cuts in most settings, 
whether playing a radiant set at Glastonbury or warmly chatting about mental health on his podcast. A music college dropout, born George Ezra Barnett, he emerged in 2014 as part of a cohort of middle-class British boys with acoustic guitars. Unlike most of them, he wasn't lachrymose or ambition-crazed. Instead, he had a good weird sense of humour and a big voice, cultivated after this ardent blues fan became obsessed with the US blues singer Lead Belly. Ezra's label sent him into railing to inspire his first album, Wanted on Voyage, and he famously saw much of Europe, except Budapest, the name of his breakthrough single. That song set the George Ezra template, primary coloured bonhomie, a yearning for escape, an awed insistence that he'd give up anything for a girl. For album two, staying at Tamara's, he Airbnb'd in Barcelona and came back with the rabidly catchy singles Shotgun and Paradise. Both of his albums hit number one and spent 336 weeks in the charts and counting between them rare numbers that put you in the Sheeran leagues. Having always used trips as creative inspiration, Ezra intended to write album three as he walked from Land's End to John O'Groats in the spring of 2020. Instead, he spent five weeks of lockdown alone in London before family and friends convinced him to move back to Hertfordshire. For two months, during that mood-spiking heatwave, he lived in a van on a friend's farm. It was dogs that needed walking and fields that needed mowing, he remembers dreamily. He soon bought his own place. Being back has done him the world of good. He loves community. When you can walk out your front door and the whole town feels like an extension of a back garden. And though he knows this might seem weird, regressive or stuck, I feel comfortable in the fact that I've moved on and then some. Ezra says change is beautiful, and it suits him. His strong features sit more comfortably on a man's face. When his hair grew out during lockdown, he swept it back and realised this was his look. He has laughably nice skin. Another recent change. I started washing. I said to my sister, washing your skin really makes a difference, doesn't it? She was like, fuck off, yes. On his first two albums, he often sang about escaping and giving it all up. The transformations on his lovely third album, Gold Rush Kid, are less about tearing up the script than recognising a moment as it's happening and discovering contentment within it. It's a steadier album, he says. The first time around, he relied on his travels for something to write about. Second time, he had seen the world, played New Year's Eve in Tasmania, and so then writing about crocodiles and dreaming becomes quite realistic. This time, he says, it felt honest and cool to write about the everyday substance of his life, assignations in hotel rooms and bars, surrendering to a lover's beauty on the dance floor. On the big chorus title track, he sings of robbing the bank, making a run for it and learning to dance, winging it, basically. He had been thinking about the opportunists who rushed west in the 1850s and understood it as people deciding, over there is something worth pursuing, and it's finite, so go and get it. Ezra writes to reinforce the things he needs to hear, and he's realised that this is the attitude he wants to cultivate towards his career and his life. Remember, 
enjoy this. It is odd to hear that George Ezra, who wrote the lyric Bikini Bottoms, Lager Tops, I Could Get Used to This, and sang it with a giddy whoop, needed that nudge. But his earlier, bright exterior concealed a bleak mindset. In the past, when I've been the most intimidated and the most scared, it was really easy to tip over into nihilism and go, fuck it, it's all going to end anyway, so what does it matter? He says, bitterly. Perhaps that outlook has benefits, he considers, but I don't think I ever got there in a good way. He is a surprisingly careful conversationalist, taking long pauses to risk assess any admission. I press him for examples of how he would self-sabotage, but he says it wouldn't do him any good to go into detail. But he admits he almost let this mentality total his career. In 2020, Ezra insisted that he wanted to quit music, telling his manager, I don't identify with it, I don't understand it, I find it really hard to get my head around why I would pursue what I associate with being quite stressful, because the last album was unenjoyable at times, by my own doing. Ezra had become the kid who just says yes, he says, a punishing identity that gave him a perverse kind of validation. The diary would be bursting. You could almost see it pulsating. And I lost control. And therefore, I started to try to control the things that didn't need controlling. He gives the example of spending three hours packing hand luggage. Dude, you could throw some underwear in that bag, a few t-shirts and a toothbrush, and you would be fine. As we chat, he often gives himself a second person talking to. But this thing could be on display at a museum. He also has pure O, a form of OCD that involves intrusive thoughts without the physical compulsions. He used to lose weeks to them. During the first lockdown, he found a therapist and practiced transcendental meditation, which helped. Now the thoughts might loop for just 30 minutes. He has stopped trying to stop them, because that's where I used to wind myself up, he says. When life opened up again, Ezra got back to writing with his long-term collaborator Joel Pott formerly of 2000's indie band, Athlete, and rediscovered the pleasures of music that his yes-man persona had trampled. The reason you do this is because you love it, he tells himself, and maybe that's the payoff, that you get to pursue something you love, but as a result you're going to feel it acutely and care too much at times. Pot praises the good people around Ezra, who told him he didn't owe anyone anything. Given Ezra's renewed joy, it may seem counterintuitive that death looms over Gold Rush Kid. He cavorts with her on green, green grass, another insatiable earworm. On the twinkly closer, sun went down, he repeats with real warmth, I could die now. It's not the old nihilism, but a sense of peace that comes from knowing he is giving life his best shot, of accepting himself in this moment. While Ezra likes his first two albums, he loves this one. It doesn't sound like anything but myself, he says. The first five tracks are classic Ezra, as bright and buoyant as a new pool inflatable. But then it takes a ruminative shift. The album's most striking song, I Went Hunting, beautifully addresses his past self-sabotage. It's not a prelude to him becoming a tortured artist, he says. Ezra disdains artists longing to shed their pop fans and get serious, but the result of a lot of self-reflection. He's chuffed when I single out his favourite line from lead single Anyone For You. 
remember me the way I am, not the way I was. Once a month, he prints selected photos from his phone and deletes the rest. I feel like I'm dragging something along with me, he says. He struggles to identify those changes, partly because they're ineffable, partly because he enjoys privacy, but he gives it a go. He's discovered that contentment is different from happiness. On this album, he's telling himself, You're all right. You're not a villain. Ezra still walked from Land's End to John O'Groats with two friends for an upcoming documentary series, ultimately relieved he didn't have to write an album at the same time. Walking 20 to 30 miles a day gave him the same feeling of peace as transcendental meditation, one that stuck around. There was another experience as well. He won't discuss the specifics on record because he says he hasn't figured out how to communicate it, but it showed him that the love in his life was inescapable. I have these people around me, family and friends that are there. The lesson was, what you don't get, George, is that they just love you because of who you are. And don't try to make sense of that because you won't be able to, but accept it. He thinks about it all the time. It felt seismic, but really calm. I think that's true of a lot of the last few years. These huge changes that actually just took one tiptoe to the left. He has learned to look after himself, phone off at 9pm, light the fire, read, and found work-life balance. I can actually plan meaningful interactions with friends around work, he says, which is the thing I've always envied in other people. And no more yes, ma'am. He told management, put things in front of me if you think they're important and only fight for them if you think they're really important. Still, he wants to give Gold Rush Kid a fighting chance, especially as he anticipates turning 30 and thinks about drawing a line in the sand at some point. It's the saddest thing I see in pop music, when people just cling on to something, he says. He isn't retiring prematurely. He might release music more regularly, but cease touring. I get a lot from it, positive and negative, he says. It's an insane amount of adrenaline to experience and then to carry that with you. Ezra is not the sort of pop star who game plans their career five years in advance. The opposite, in fact. He definitively does not want to break the US. It's too big a place to consider mirroring what my work looks like in Europe and Australia, he says. To try to recreate that would kill me. I don't need it. He also wants children, which feels incompatible with a career at his level. There are home videos of me as a child saying I want to be a dad, he says. I have to question people that are very famous and pursue that after having kids. It's lost on me. It sounds selfish. The most he will look to his future career is to suggest that being adored by the nation's children means his songs will ultimately become throwback party classics. Any kids that didn't already know him soon did if they followed Joe Wicks's lockdown PE lessons. Ezra's mum, a primary school teacher, told him Wicks said he couldn't play music on the videos because of copyright. She suggested that Ezra let Wicks use his songs for free. So he did, then donated the royalties to the NHS. It was just a good thing to be able to do, he says. What does it say that pop stars are having to donate to the NHS during a pandemic? He pauses. There's a lot I don't understand, he says sadly. The amount that I don't understand intimidates me, 
to the point where it probably doesn't serve me to speak about it because I don't know where to start. But then I'm like, is that the point? Are you made to feel like you don't understand when really you do? And that's the thing I found hard about the last few years, he says with a sudden ragged breath, is actually feeling helpless in some way. He says the last part in the smallest voice, and we're both surprised to find he's crying, his grey-blue eyes now red. Sorry, he says quickly and regroups. There's a lot of confusing stuff going on in the world. It's sad. You're right. Why are fucking pop stars donating to the NHS? Ezra says he hasn't generally made political statements because he doesn't feel qualified although he recalls his parents, Labour Party members, taking him on marches, and not because his fan base is so broad. He casts aspersions as he gestures around the old barge. I love this pub. It is empty of an evening and it shouldn't be, he says emphatically, referencing the fear over Omicron. Not that it should be busy, but they're not helped. If people shouldn't be going out, tell them to close the doors and help them through that time. He laments that... Making the world an intimidating and confusing place is a really convenient way of pitting people against one another. It runs counter to his worldview. He comes back to the walk, on which they regularly met two types of farmer. People that live hand-to-mouth up at 4am on Christmas, and they were lovely, pointing us in the right direction. We also met men who wear gold rings on their little fingers and live in big houses on the farms, and they were lovely and told us which direction to go. It's why he loved Gogglebox so much, he says, because it's good to be reminded. You're all the same in many ways. Ezra's music has always expressed his faith in collective goodness. We're all right together. We're just human, as he sings on the song Gold Rush Kid. You're just like everyone. You're holding on. Has that belief been shaken in the past two years? when it's often seemed as though we aren't all in this together. I don't think so, he says. Getting out and walking the country and meeting people, it just isn't true. I get terrified that everyone's out to get each other. For the most part, they are. Until you step out your front door. That was singer George Ezra on fame, friendship and finding new inspiration by Laura Snapes. Read by Esme Patyford. Now, are you being driven half mad by the colleague who micromanages, the boss who bullies, or the co-worker who sleeps on the job? Or maybe you're the jerk at work. In our final piece, writer Alex Mashakis explores how to navigate the messy world of office politics. Read by Neet Mohan. 20 years ago, the American psychologist Tessa West began arriving early to the department store at which she worked, so she could avoid the salesperson she spent most of her time with. Really, she was hoping to escape just one colleague, someone with whom she disagreed about shop floor etiquette. Her, don't steal clients. The co-worker, why not? In the early mornings, West could be sure they wouldn't run into each other, saving her from stress and anxiety, which can lead to ill health. It's not that I thought anything bad was going to happen, she recalled via Zoom. It was the not knowing what would happen and the increase in heart rate that comes with that uncertainty. Soon the situation became so preoccupying that West quit. 
not so much resolving the conflict as bypassing it altogether. Did it work? Sure, but how much energy did that take up? A lot. West, who is now 40, is a professor of psychology at New York University, where she runs the West Interpersonal Perception Lab, a research unit that studies, broadly, how we deal with each other and how those interactions affect our mental and physiological states. I spent the first 10 years of my career doing basic science on how people communicate, she says, which included a lot of time in labs evoking horrible experiences to see what people do. One study involved West sitting participants in a chair and being mean to them to measure their stress responses. Before long, she noticed that a lot of what she was observing could be captured in the workplace, how individuals influence groups, how status affects persuasion and morale, how anxiety affects everyday relations. And the more she researched, the more she realized that, like her younger self, very few of us know how to resolve everyday conflicts at work. Like, I don't know, she says, did you ever take a course to learn what to do when someone's being a low-level asshole? West and I are meeting to discuss Jerks at Work, her new book, in which she explains the types of bad colleagues we encounter in the workplace and attempts to equip readers with strategies to mend disputes. Most of us have worked with someone who had an outsized effect on our emotional well-being, she writes. To cope, we've tried a few tactics. Venting to friends. Disengaging from the social scene at work. Gossiping about the person in the hopes our bosses will learn, via the grapevine, just how miserable we are. None of this tends to help. Typically, neither does the alternative. Retaliating through confrontation, which often ends in more conflict, since most people don't enjoy having their flaws spelled out to them in excruciating detail. Sometimes we think of the ability to argue as displaying superiority or courage, and not a worrying volatility and lack of emotional control. West argues we're all capable of being poor colleagues. A lot of work jerkery is rooted in innate feelings and behaviours. Laziness, jealousy, the various emotional fissures we experience in marriages, repackaged for office life. On needling pettiness at work, one recent viral tweet read, The feeling of forwarding an email you have been accused of not sending is probably the same as winning a duel. We all have our embarrassing weaknesses. We can all be jerks. Some of us get overwhelmed, so we ghost people, do a disappearing act. At work, those folks are more likely to be free riders or neglectful bosses. Others get anxious, so they micromanage. Problems arise whenever a group works together. I've seen Nobel laureates act the same way in meetings that I saw on the shop floor, West says. Tantrums, attacks on reputation, hotshot egos, credit stealing, microaggression, passive aggression, conniving attempts to get ahead. It affects us deeply. Once, when West was tasked with rearranging her faculty's office plan, she faced kickback from colleagues upset at the changes. People would come to me in private and say, there's no way I can share a war with this person. They cared more about that, how many feet away from their nemesis they were, than whether or not they got promoted. She later caught a co-worker walking down the hall with a two-gallon bottle of water that was clearly full of urine. West realised he was pissing in his office to avoid bumping into a colleague in the toilet. All of this would be amusing if it weren't so damaging. A lot of us worry about acute stresses, those big life events when we can physically feel our hearts racing and our palms sweating, West says. 
But the biggest predictor of health outcomes is daily, low-level stuff. Incessant stress sustained for three to five days is enough to affect your immune system, making you more susceptible to mild illnesses like colds. As that stress cascades over years, studies have shown scarier problems to emerge. Obesity, impotence, cancer, high blood pressure, heart disease. If you're feeling butterflies in your stomach because you know you're going to run into someone who's going to say something rude, West says, that adds up. In a 2014 study, West asked parents to deliver a talk to strangers, an experience known to induce anxiety, and then had them sit with their children, all of whom were between 6 and 12 months old. We found that the babies showed physiological alignment with their parents' stress responses, West says. If a mum had an elevated heart rate, the baby caught that stress. This kind of emotional transference can be termed stress contagion. And if you told the mum to try to regulate it, to push it down, the effect was even worse, she continues. So if you get really stressed with your boss at work and you try to suppress it, if you don't talk about it with your family, if you think that's going to solve it, she shakes her head. Doesn't work. It leaks out of you through all these non-verbal communication channels. You show it in your face, you sigh, and your family becomes attuned. It affects your relationships with them, but it also affects their physiology, their stress in their bodies. She looks concerned. That part is terrifying. But if you don't solve your problems at work, your kids are going to suffer. Your spouse is going to suffer in ways you don't even realize. It is likely you've had bad colleagues. It is also likely you've had a bad boss. Everyone has a story, don't you? Perhaps it involves micromanagement or neglect or small acts of soul-crushing criticism or larger harassment and abuse. Perhaps the malevolence was avert. Perhaps it was more subtle, so that if you were to later describe it to friends, it would seem minor and inconsequential, and you might come off as appearing hypersensitive. This is true of so much workplace conflict. Often, a jerk is a jerk for a series of small, collective actions, not for one colossally atrocious deed. Sometimes, bosses don't realise the effect they're having on workers, and it is helpful to remain modest about their levels of self-awareness. An acquaintance recently told me she once had a female boss who did all of the following in an open-plan office in front of both male and female colleagues. 1. Asked me what menstrual products I used. 2. Asked me what bra size I wore. 3. Asked me when I was planning to have children. 4. Told me off for asking, how was your weekend, on a Monday morning because she didn't like personal questions. Often, Managers become managers for one of two reasons. They'd excelled at their previous job, or they had drifted around an organisation long enough for higher-ups to finally announce, OK, it is time. Frequently, a manager has no experience of managing people before they are required to, which can be disastrous. Very few managers are trained, West says. Sometimes it's because their managers weren't trained. And if you get so far up at work and you still suck at this, it's a bit embarrassing. You don't like to admit it. It's like a dark secret. Once you get to a certain career stage, it feels patronizing to take a how to get along with others class. In the book, she writes, a lot of jerk at work problems result from poor leadership. It is up to a manager to transform an undermined or eroded culture. In West's view, 
we undervalue how much communication affects the workplace. And she is riled by the fact this learnable skill is rarely taught. Why aren't workers mandatorily coached in conflict management, she wonders. Why, during interviews, is our focus on bottom-line productivity rather than how well they might function within a larger whole? There are some basic skills, West says of bosses, like how to check in on a team to make sure no one is free-riding, how not to enable people who kiss up and kick down. Little things managers should do, they're simple. They don't require charisma or mind-reading or magical empathy or any of those kind of soft skills. They just require small changes in behaviour. Obvious shit, really. But so many of us don't do it because nobody told us to. The lasting shift to remote work brought on by the pandemic has been kind to jerks in some ways and terrible in others. Colleagues who once benefited from the slippery, informal workplace conversations that were allowed to occur in office environments have been hampered by Zoom calls, which involve structure and multiple attendees. It is difficult to bitch about a colleague if your target is with you on screen. But others have thrived. With physical distance, it has become easier for neglectful bosses to neglect. West, bosses should never assume no news is good news. At home, shirkers shirk, and micromanagers send emails around the clock. Because what does the pandemic workday look like anymore? Recently, West attended a department video conference in which she says one colleague, a bulldozer digitally if not in person, dominated by yelling so that he appeared on screen more than anyone else, making it difficult for the meeting's organiser to interrupt and increasing his chances of getting his own way. The Zoom problem, which remarkably at this stage of working from home remains a common organisational issue, is easily fixed. Never use SpeakerView, which a single participant can monopolise, and instead Break the screen up into a grid so more voices can be heard. This is a strategy West describes as controlling the spotlight. Other conflicts are trickier to resolve, though they nearly always involve similarly simple actions. In Jerks at Work, West helps readers understand that a poor office situation isn't futile, that no matter how constantly unsettled you might feel, there is always a move to make. For micromanagers, she suggests... Set mutually agreed upon expectations. For bulldozers, learn to speak first in meetings and jettison their dominance. For the co-worker on a campaign of terror, create physical and psychological buffers so as to lessen interaction and anxiety. Much of West's book leads to the fact that if a colleague is being a jerk to you, it is likely they are being a jerk to other people too. To this end, West suggests developing a broad network within your organisation. Not friends so much as distant contacts with social capital, who, via interdepartmental awareness, might help identify troublemakers. This needn't be the CEO, because who, really, can reach the CEO? I'm the only faculty member here who invites the IT department to my Christmas parties, West says. People think it's weird. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're the most socially savvy people here. West has worked at NYU for 14 years and has been a tenured professor for seven. At the end of our conversation, I ask if she has problems at work now, half expecting the answer to be no, perhaps naively, faintly hopeful. Yes, she says, many. It's still tough, I ask. Of course, she says. Then she laughs and adds, just like any other skill, it needs practice.
that was micromanagement, credit stealing, bullying. Are you a jerk at work? By Alex Mashakis. Read by Neat Mohan. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. Make sure you subscribe by searching Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. The articles were read by Jan Ravens, Neat Mohan, Esme Paytyford, and presented by me, Savannah Ayode Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Music and sound design by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers were Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.